from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As Donald Trump spends millions to promote U.S. militarism on Independence Day, anti-war activists gather on the National Mall to denounce tanks and warplanes used as political props. Today is not supposed to be a day where we see tanks on our streets, right? And very soon, we're going to hear the sound of bombers overhead. Today is not a day to hear bombers over our heads, is it? And as outrage grows over increased abuse of asylum seekers by the U.S. federal government, human rights defenders mark the 10th anniversary of the U.S.-backed coup in Honduras that is forcing Hondurans to flee north to the United States. The children and youth are the ones who are most affected by decades of foreign policies of the United States government in cahoots with Guatemala, with El Salvador, with Honduras that have orchestrated military interventions, dictatorships, and massacres and genocide of our people. All these stories and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Now, while July 4th, 2019 may be remembered as the most militaristic Independence Day put on by a U.S. president with tanks and fighter jets, it was also a day for anti-war and human rights activists to gather on the National Mall. Defying rain clouds, they held the Trump is a Big Baby Festival, replete with a blimp depicting the 45th president as a diaper-clad, angry baby clutching his cell phone. Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, Women for Peace, said Trump's holiday celebration was a thinly disguised re-election event. We're paying for Donald Trump to force the military to be a backdrop for what looks like a campaign rally, doesn't it? Now the media has said, oh, Donald Trump promises that he's not going to say anything partisan today. Well, we say, yeah, and we say just by being here, just by giving out the VIP tickets to his donors, just by giving out the VIP tickets to the Republican National Committee, just like using our tax dollars for his speech. That's pretty political, wouldn't you say? More voices from July 4th on the Mall after headlines. The dueling holiday festivities are capping a week filled with more damning reports about squalid conditions and inhumane treatment of migrants held in U.S. detention camps. On Monday, ProPublica published an expose about a secret Facebook group for current and former Border Patrol agents that includes racist, misogynist, and otherwise hateful comments about migrants, including about the recent drowning deaths of Oscar Martinez Ramirez and his daughter Valeria. There are also demeaning posts about Latinx female members of Congress, with one lewd photoshopped image of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York being sexually assaulted by President Trump. Posts also included plans to disrupt the visit on Monday by members of Congress to a Border Patrol facility. And as members of Congress held a press conference after visiting Texas facilities on Monday, they were forced to scream to be heard over heckling Trump supporters who accused them of lying about what they had just saw and heard from those in prison, including the fact that children are still being separated from their parents. 
Representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts told hecklers that their actions are hateful and racist. I want to talk about parents, the mothers, the abuelas, the tias, the madres that I sat with who wept openly in arms, not even knowing our names because of the trauma they are experiencing and because they don't know where their children are. Keep yelling. This is very appropriate. Vile rhetoric for vile actions. Hateful rhetoric for hateful behavior. Racist words and venom for racist policies. Very apropos. This is bigger than a funding debate or about any speeches that we give here on the floor of the House of Representatives. This is about the preservation of our humanity. And this is about seeing every single person there as a member of your own family. I am tired of the health and the safety, the humanity, and the full freedoms of black and brown children being negotiated and compromised and moderated. We need a system that works, that is humane, and that is compassionate, and that keeps families together. I learned a long time ago that when change happens, it's either because people see the light or they feel the fire. Today we are lifting up these stories in the hopes that you will see the light. And if you don't, we will bring the fire. Representative Nanette Barrigan of California said that the low numbers of those seen in prison at the two Texas facilities, one in Clint and another in El Paso, raises questions for her about where and how the $4.6 billion just approved by Congress for immigration is being spent. On the next day, on Tuesday, July 2nd, a protest was held here in D.C. outside the offices of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. On the next day, on Tuesday, July 2nd, a protest was held here in D.C. outside the office of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, one of a series of actions nationwide. Juanita Cabrera-Lopez, executive director of the International Mayan League USA, reminded those gathered that the six children who have died in U.S. custody are indigenous children of Mayan heritage. It is not a coincidence that the children and youth are the ones who are most affected by decades of foreign policies of the United States government in cahoots with Guatemala, with El Salvador, with Honduras, that have orchestrated military interventions, dictatorships, and massacres and genocide of our people. This is why we're here today, a systemic and rotten system of oppression and profit and economic policies that profit a few. When I say the name, please say Presente. Felipe! Presente! Carlos! Presente! 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 In culture and media, historian and author Gerald Horn will be at Sankofa Books and Video on Georgia Avenue in Northwest D.C. on Friday, July 5th at 6.30 p.m. That's tonight as we go to broadcast. He'll be reading from his new book, 
Jazz and Justice, Racism and the Political Economy of the Music. More from Gerald on his new book later in the show. And in other events, on Saturday, July 6th from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m., the all-out D.C. mobilization against white nationalism is happening at Pershing Park, 15th Street and Pennsylvania Avenue in Northwest D.C. To counter a planned rally by white supremacists and the alt-right scheduled for Freedom Plaza. More information is on Facebook at hashtag AllOutDC on July 6th, Stop the Alt-Right. And more information is also at AllOutDC.org. On Saturday, July 6th at 10 a.m. is the first meeting of the newly formed Macmillan Conservancy dedicated to saving the rare historic public green space in Northeast D.C. from high-rise development. The meeting is July 6th, 10 a.m. at 69 Bryant Street Northwest, and more information is available on Facebook and by calling 202-656-5874 or write to smac.dc at gmail.com. And finally, Sunday, July 7th and Monday, July 8th is Rise Against Racism, Counter Christians United for Israel or Kufi. There are services, meetings, and trainings Sunday, July 7th at Plymouth Congregational United Church of Christ in Northeast D.C. And on Monday, July 8th, there are meetings and then actions outside the Walter E. Washington Convention Center. More information is at FOSNA.org. That's F-O-S-N-A dot org. Or on Facebook under Rise Against Racism Counter Kufi. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, voices from anti-war activists on the mall on July 4th. Stay with us. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. My brother's doing fast on my mother's TV. Says she watches too much. It's just not healthy. All my children in the daytime, Dallas at night. Can't even see the game or the Sugar Ray fight. The bill collectors, they ring my phone and scare my wife when I'm not home. Got a bum education, double-digit inflation. Can't take the train to the job. There's a strike at the station. Neon King Kong standing on my back. Can't stop to turn around. Broke my sacroiliac, a mid-range migraine, cancer membrane. Sometimes I think I'm going insane. I swear I might hijack a plane. Don't push me. Call. I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me- As President Trump prepared to spend an estimated millions of taxpayer dollars on his heavily militarized and politicized July 4th celebration, Salute to America, Code Pink made sure to have an activist presence on the mall in opposition to the president's opulent celebration and his policies. Central to Code Pink's event was a display of the baby Trump balloon. The blimp is a replica made in the United States of the original blimp flown in London. Anne Wright, former U.S. colonel and diplomat turned peace activist, gave concrete ways that we can be engaged in opposing imperialism in the Trump era and beyond. It is really important that we're here. As many have said, I've spent many years in the military, 29 years in the military. I've resigned as a colonel. 
that I was a U.S. diplomat for 16 years, and it was as a diplomat that I resigned in 2003 in opposition to the war on Iraq. So for the last 16, almost now 17 years, I've been joining with groups like Code Pink Women for Peace, Veterans for Peace. If you're for peace, I'm with you. So these, these signs that, that Code Pink's hanging out, make out, not war. Well, that's what we have to be doing, is we as citizens have to be really, really mean and nasty with our Congress people to say we aren't putting up with any more of these wars. You must stop getting us involved in these things. You must stop that. I mean, we think about Yemen. Yemen, the poor, poor little country that we and Code Pink were in Yemen about four years ago, before all of this war from Saudi Arabia and the U.S. on Yemen. It is horrific what the international community has allowed to have happen. It is horrific that we, the United States, have been a key participant in killing hundreds of thousands of Yemenis and starving to death little kids. So please go after your Congress people, tell them no more wars anywhere, and stop supporting the Saudis in killing all of the Yemenis. Thank you. Oh yeah, and one other thing, we've all been working on the whole issue of Israel and Palestine. Uh, Code Pink Women for Peace had trips to, to Gaza in 2009, 2010. Many of us have been to Gaza at least five or six times in the, in the years that the, the Israelis have bombed Gaza, just bombed it to smithereens. I've been part of a group that's called the Gaza Freedom Flotilla, and we have been sending ships to break the Israeli naval blockade of Gaza. And we've had people on our ships that have been killed by the Israelis, internationals that are trying to stand up for the Palestinians. And the Palestinians in the West Bank, whose homes are being, uh, being torn up every day with new Israeli settlements in, in East Jerusalem, uh, those that are living in Palestinian lands, and yet now the illegal settlements, over 800,000 people are living in those illegal settlements. So it's not this Jared Kushner peace plan for the Palestinians. Well, it ain't good for the Palestinians. So please tell your Congress people to go after Kushner on that and do support the people of Palestine. The people of Palestine by Gaza, by the year 2020, they say it will be uninhabitable because of what the people of, or the government of Israel have, has done to Palestine. Thank you. Comedian Lee Camp was also among the speakers. He made connections to the U.S. military-industrial complex that precedes Trump, which his Salute to America celebration showcased with tanks and fighter jets, laying out the consequences of endless war. I want to go through some of these uh, some of these numbers real quick with you before it starts pouring. Although I have to admit, I'll be excited to literally see it rain on Trump's parade. That'll be very that'll be very exciting. <laughs> but these numbers, you don't get to hear these numbers much because guess what? Our mainstream media is not meant to give you the truth, is it? It's not meant to actually tell. They'll tell you what's wrong about Trump all day long, except not what's wrong about war, not what's wrong about our military-industrial complex. Our military-industrial complex, under Trump, drops a bomb every 12 minutes. Every 12 minutes, a bomb is landing somewhere, destroying someone's lives, ending innocent civilians. According to the Pentagon's own numbers, 98% of drones hit unintended targets. You know what the term unintended target means? Innocent civilian. All right? 
They like to use those little euphemisms, make us feel good. It's an unintended target. No, it's not a target at all. It's an innocent civilian. They dropped roughly 40,000 a year. 40, in 2017, the last time we have numbers, the year 2017, 40,000 bombs were dropped from our planes. All right. Under Obama, it was less than that, but it was still tens of thousands. So this stuff goes on. It doesn't matter whether Obama's in office, whether Trump's in office. Tens of thousands being bombed uh, uh, every year. And who? Who are we at war with? Huh? Do we even know anymore? Ask your average American walking around what country we're at war with. They won't know what to tell you. They won't know what to tell you. And where, where's all that money go, right? $21 trillion of unaccounted for adjustments in our Pentagon over the past 20 years. $21 trillion. Don't try and think about that number. Blood will shoot out your ears. $21 trillion. If you make $40,000 a year, it would take you over 500 million years to make that much money. 500 million years. Don't worry, though. After the first couple million, it's much easier. It's, uh, you, you know where the water cooler is. You're, you're just set. And they always say, whenever we try and give people health care, whenever we try and build up our infrastructure, whenever we try and fix our, our homeless problem, fix our broken system, they say, where are you going to get the money for that, right? That's one of their favorite questions. Where are you going to get the money for that? Well, how about the trillions we dump into war every year? How about the trillions that we dump into military? They never seem to ask that question when they say we gotta go after ISIS, we gotta go after Taliban, we have to go after Al Qaeda. They never seem to ask, where are you gonna get the money for that, do they? You never hear that question with war, only with health care. They also say, when you say I wanna we wanna change the health care, we'll give everybody health care, they say, well it's that's a huge part of our economic system. You that sounds too hard. It's too hard to fix our health care system. But when was the last time they said, We gotta go to war in Iraq? And people said, That sounds really hard. That sounds too hard, right? It sounds too hard. You gotta go all the way over there. You gotta knock over all the buildings. You gotta build them back up. Sounds very hard. Sounds very hard. It's not too hard. We can do it. We just need the will. We just need the people standing up and fighting back. And if we did that, we could change it overnight. And we prop up all these people we claim to fight. ISIS is over there fighting with our weapons. The Taliban, we paid the Taliban to let our trucks through in Afghanistan so that we can fight the Taliban. Literally, I'm not making, literally. That's why I always was curious how a ragtag group of people in flip-flops could compete with the most powerful military in the world. It's because they have us on their side. That's how they're doing it. We are. We're fighting the violence we create. And this violence then comes home. That's what a lot of people don't like to talk about. This violence in our endless wars comes home to here. It comes home in our veterans whose minds we've destroyed or sometimes physically we've destroyed them. It comes home in our police forces, the violence in our police forces. Nowadays, every, every protest you ever see, the cops are all riot geared up. They're ready for war. They're in weapons of war. And, and, and people go, well, they're there to keep the peace. No, it doesn't work like that. People don't, people don't dress like Rambo and act like Gandhi. It's not a thing, all right? Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin had these remarks about the trials faced in organizing the event in conjunction with the National Park Service, as well as the driving purpose of gathering people in this way. 
Well, it took us way over a month to get even a response about being here, and we wanted to be in the line of sight uh, of the Lincoln Memorial where Trump is speaking. We weren't allowed to get that, and we wanted to put some helium in the balloon to get him off the ground and flying. Uh, we weren't allowed to do that, but we are glad that we're here, and we think it's a great liberated space on this mall where there's so much Trumpism, and I think we're we're in a place where Trump has hijacked our national holiday and made it partly a campaign rally and used our tax dollars to do it. So we're feeling like uh, he's the one that brought the division to this holiday. He's the one that brought the militarism to this holiday. He's the one who's the big baby because it's got to always be all about him. And so the big baby is a good symbol of why we're here protesting Donald Trump. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. From the National Mall, this is Chantal James. The name of this tune is Baltimore Goddamn, and I mean every word of it. New York got me so upset. Ferguson makes me lose my rest, and everybody knows about Baltimore Goddamn. Florida got me so upset. Chicago makes me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Baltimore. God damn. Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? It's all in the air. I can't stand the violence much longer. Somebody say a prayer. New York got me so upset. Ferguson makes me lose my rest And everybody knows about Baltimore Goddamn This is not a show tune This is real life It's all over the news You may have seen it too This is On the Ground OnTheGroundShow.org Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital I'm Esther Averam well, June 28, 2019 marked 10 years since the Honduran military overthrew the democratically elected President Manuel Zelaya in a U.S.-backed coup. Since then, Hondurans working for human rights in their country are met with violence and repression from a U.S.-funded narco-military dictatorship. And those Hondurans fleeing to the U.S. to escape what the U.S. has created in their country are met with extreme violence, their children are kidnapped or locked in cages, and their asylum claims are often not heard or rejected. Last week, a coalition of organizations held a celebration of 10 years of Honduran resistance since the coup at St. Stephen Church in Northwest D.C. And here are three voices from the program, Liana Montesinos, a Honduran asylee and immigration attorney, Sean Blackman of the Stop Police Terror Project D.C., and Andrea Molina, an elementary school teacher. The Genocide Convention, Article 2, Section B, states that genocide is causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. This is happening right now. I was at the border. We can talk about this. You don't have to go to the border. You can go to the detention centers in Carnes, Zilli. Pick a state. Section C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. We have had almost half a dozen children that have been reported dead under the custody of the United States. That is murder. 
it's nothing less. Forcibly transferring children of the group to another group, Session E. Our children are being kidnapped. They're being trafficked by the United States government. That's what that is. They're being removed from their parents and they're being separated and placed into concentration camps. Recently, there was um, a policy by Trump to deny the children toothbrush and all its soap. How worried you made can we get? I was at the border in Christmas with a group of 14 advocates. We saw things that I wish I had never seen. It was such a loss of humanity. We saw people sleeping on their own feces because the Mexican government had them in places that were not, they were placed in different fields, uh, baseball fields, uh, stadiums, and these places had no regulation. They didn't have the humanitarian aid that human beings require, especially children. The children were getting sick. There was a lady that I was helping and I was trying to get her, because my job was to prepare her for her credible fear interview. This lady was about to have her leg amputated. Do you think this person is going to be able to focus in telling me the fears that she has back home when she is under extreme pain? These are conditions that different governments have created. For the longest period of time, the United States government has been paying Mexico per Central American head that they deport. With the Remain in Mexico policy, things are becoming horrible, not only for the Central Americans and people from other countries that are in Mexico, but also for the Mexican refugees. Nobody has a clear understanding on what's happening to the refugees. I was recently on HSH, which is a Honduran channel, and through that brief interview, I received calls even from people in Mexico telling me they're not letting me cross. They told me that I have to wait. But here's the thing. Everything that the United States government is doing is prepping to later bar people for asylum eligibility. So if somebody is able to firmly resettle somewhere else, that's a bar for asylum. A few months ago, the United States government was forcing Mexico, to my understanding, they didn't agree to this, to sign a treaty that, because we have a treaty with Canada where if somebody who wants to seek asylum in the United States goes to Canada first, they cannot apply in the United States. They have to seek asylum in Canada. So the United States is trying to force that upon the Mexican government. Who is that targeting? All of the Central Americans who are trying to get into the United States. Let me not go back to history, as I heard in that poem, that the continent is ours. We are natives to this land. All we want, let me say that again, we are natives to this land. And all we want is what you want, to have your families together, to love and care for your children, to ensure that they have the education that they need to be able to succeed. I wouldn't have been an immigration attorney or any type of attorney or anything in Honduras. My family was too poor. And over there, my grandma and my great-grandmother worked really hard. But success over there is not determined by how hard you work. It's determined by the class that has already been imposed by the time you were born. It's determined by your last name. 
and it's determined whether you have a male in your family. We didn't. In Honduras, there is such a thing that is called femicide. Every hour, 12 women are killed in Honduras. The United States has such involvement in the destabilization of my country, but I also blame our current government in Honduras. And to end, I want to empower you. Use this anger, particularly what recently happened to the young little girl who was not even two, and her father who drowned in El Rio Bravo. I crossed El Rio Bravo. When I saw that picture, I was like, that could have been me. But what matters is that as we speak right now, there are lots of people trying to cross because let me tell you, as long as there is femicide, violence, corruption, and hunger, people will leave. And freedom of movement across borders, it's a human right. of slavery, but we can change that. And the fact that you're here says a lot. You were brave enough to take ownership of our history, pardon my French, nuestra puta historia, and I say nuestra because I'm a US citizen, and I wanna change that. I wanna change the narrative. And I wanna empower each one of you, especially immigrants, know your rights. Know that if somebody knocks on your door, you don't need to open that door. That's your house, that's your castle. The United States Constitution says that somebody's home is their castle. Nobody can enter. If somebody tries to rob you, you can shoot them, right? So that's just a parallel. If eyes comes into your house, you don't have to open the door. Don't open the door. Ask for a warrant signed by a federal judge. Si la migra viene a su puerta, usted no debe abrir la puerta. So to the real allies, and let's not confuse being an ally with being a white savior. There's a difference. Empower, don't belittle. Know your history, take ownership, and know the spaces where we walk into. That's why I really appreciated that we were speaking in Spanish, that we had music in Spanish. This is our space, you are our guest. Yes. <laughs> Recognize your privilege. I have privilege because of my skin color, even though I am brown. I don't think I'm white. I am not white. But through all the racial profiling that is happening, I have that visual privilege. So what I'm saying to you is, first, recognize your privilege. Second, do something about it. If you're in a bus and there is an immigrant and IDs are being asked, you be the first one to say, no, I'm not gonna show you my ID. Don't let the undocumented immigrant be the one to say, I can't give you my ID. Be a real hermano, a real hermana. And the fact that you're here tells me a lot about you because you, you place yourself in a place where maybe you knew that you were going to be uncomfortable and that's growth and I applaud that. Now let's act. If you really want to help, I'm involved in a lot of things. I'm going to the border in November. I'm organizing a lot of things here and your money is also uh, of great help. Al Otro Lado is an organization in Tijuana. They are really great with the work they do. You can donate to them. And it's just, there are so many things that you can say. With that, my friends, the Lucha Sigue, thank you for having me. 
first like to thank uh, CSPES and all allied organizations for inviting me and Stop Police Serve Project DC and for putting on this event tonight. And I want to thank each of you for being here. I'm very encouraged and excited by the turnout that we have, and it shows how many folks are clear on why this conversation is necessary. And I also want to say that I'm humbled to share space with folks who are on the front line of this struggle for democracy and human rights. And I really do feel that there's a confluence of several factors, international, national, and local, that make it important for us to have this conversation on state-sanctioned violence and how imperialist terror manifests both here and abroad. Last night, I was watching a live stream uh, featuring Vicky Cervantes of the Honduras Solidarity Network. And when speaking of the anniversary of the US-backed coup that ousted Manuel Zelaya and installed Juan Orlando Hernandez, Ms. Cervantes said that it's been 10 years of repression under a coup regime, 10 years of resistance to that repression, and 10 years of solidarity. And when I heard this, I couldn't help but note sort of the regional implications and how this all fit into the international picture, if you will. Because this anniversary is coming at the same time that the United States government is tightening restrictions on Cuba which is already dealing with the 60-year embargo. And while at the same time, a near fascist has risen to power in Brazil under Jair Bolsonaro, while Lula da Silva remains in prison. At the same time that in Venezuela, a fake, a fraud, and a failure is trying to usurp the duly elected government of Nicolas Maduro. And while in Ecuador, Lenin Moreno is getting cozier and cozier, both with Washington and the International Monetary Fund. So I think it's important to note how on the one hand, we're seeing a concerted attempt on the part of US imperialism to not only try and squash the democratic mass movements in Honduras, but to violently and brutally roll back the progressive trajectory on the part of Latin America. Now, bringing it home uh, just a little bit, in recent months, Washington DC police have detained a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old, and at times have been detaining and harassing whole groups of children. Not to mention that we have just marked one year since the police killing of 22-year-old Marquise Austin, who DC police shot 15 times. And Police Chief Peter Newsom claims that they have, quote, overwhelming evidence that 
Marquise, who by the way is the, was the father of a three-year-old girl named Lyric, fired an illegal weapon at the officers, but they won't release the body camera footage. It's a, it's a strange thing that every time the DC police are accused of something, they say, well, no, we've seen the footage and you know we were justified in this act, but they won't make that footage available to the public, basically rendering the whole apparatus useless. We've also recently marked one year since an off-duty police officer shot and killed 24-year-old Daquan Young, who's also the father of a four-year-old girl. And do you know that since it's been a whole year since Daquan Young was killed and his family still doesn't even know the name of the officer that shot him, nor do they know the basic details of his death. Imagine that. But these crimes, which are sanctioned by Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, sanctioned by the D.C. Council, and justified by Police Chief Peter Newsham, this is really just a small example of the inhumanities suffered by D.C.'s black communities and the other oppressed communities in this city as a result of racist police terror. Now, when I say racist police terror, what do I mean? Am I just talking about the act of brutality itself or the act of an extrajudicial killing? No. Because in a vacuum, those things are isolated incidents. But when you connect the fact that these incidents of brutality and terror are directly related to the material conditions of people living in those communities, their access to housing, their access to fair wages, their access to health care, quality education, all the necessities of life. When you take all of that into account and how the police are put in place as the armed wing of the state to serve as a military solution to the social problems generated by the contradictions of capitalism, that's what elevates it, in my humble opinion, from an act of brutality or an extrajudicial killing to a reality of terror. And we know that this is also not just affecting black folks in this city. The immigrant and undocumented community in Washington, D.C. is also subject to this terror thanks to the racist uh, immigration policies of the U.S. government which have only been ramped up by the racist and xenophobic administration of Donald J. Trump. But of course, we know this, a lot of this existed before he came along. And just this past weekend, I saw reports that there were at least two people confirmed arrested by ICE right here in the Columbia Heights neighborhood. Now, these were not the sweeping raids that Trump promised, but not only is that now two more people which is too, too many, whose status and lives may hang in the balance because of these draconian policies. We're talking about a whole community which may potentially be living in uncertainty 
in terror, not really knowing what's going to happen, all because of the sick inclinations of this gross, repugnant government. I believe this is one of the ties that binds our struggles. Because this connection between the local and international incidents of state terror, I think begins to show itself a little bit. Because we have to ask ourselves about why people are migrating, the femicide, the political instability. And when you look into this, I don't think it's any coincidence that the United States government is never that far behind. And not only not that far behind, but are often at the root of a lot of it. It's like with the, with the U.S. instigating civil war and other kinds of uh, instability in Honduras, in El Salvador. And this government paints immigrants and undocumented people in that same criminal way that it does its black citizens. And the same government that's responsible for many of the conditions that leads to this immigration is also responsible for the dire conditions in the poor working and black communities right here. We know that the US government spent around four and a half billion dollars to train death squads and stamp out uh, revolutionary movements in El Salvador, and they didn't care if 75,000 Salvadorans had to be murdered throughout that 12-year war, as long as they got to keep their footprint in the country and in the region. The same goes with Honduras. You know, this government doesn't care about the repression uh, with this government's, uh, the U.S. that is, with its fake cries about democracy and human rights. It claims to care about that but not only has let in what somebody, you know, so articulately named earlier as a narco oligarchy, not only let them in, but to also let the country be ravaged by these multinational companies. And also, of course, this allows the U.S. to keep a strategic military position in the region through Honduras. And I also gotta say, I found out just today that there are thousands of Israeli troops in Honduras. Guess who's helping to train the DC police? You see what I mean? There's this thing that I'm sure some of you are familiar with called the Deadly Exchange Program, where Israel is teaching the DC police tactics of repression that they mastered in their apartheid regime and human rights abuses of the Palestinian people that continues on to this very day, to this very moment, through the great march of return that continues on. So, when I look at this whole thing, man, and I'm not foolish enough to think that this experience and this struggle is exactly the same, I don't believe that my experience here in D.C. Is, is the same at all exactly as someone living in Honduras or someone trying to cross into this country or someone caught up in the concentration camps. But I am certain that the same systems of capitalism, imperialism, and white supremacy 
that is abusing and killing folks and making rivers of blood flow all through the other side of the border is causing that same suffering right here. People not having access to the necessities of life. Human beings eating out of trash cans, sleeping on the streets in downtown DC, just blocks from the White House, in the wealthiest nation in the history of nations. And so it seems very much to me that since we know that we have no help coming from the White House, we got no help coming from the mayor's office or the city council, and certainly not the police department. We don't have them. What you and I have is each other. And it's going to take that mass movement if we're going to see change in Washington, D.C., in Honduras, and indeed all over this world. And so I thank you for listening. I look forward to building with you. Peace if you're willing to fight for it. And let your model be resistance. Thank you. Hola, I'm Andrea Molina. I'm a kindergarten teacher. Kindergarten teachers are radical. So I'm going to tell you very quickly what happened. So Mundo Verde, it's a social justice, progressive school, the key the DC, pero um, they have a ton of uh, bilingual teachers um, and teachers from um, kind of all over the place, muchos de Centroamerica y de America Latina, y de America Latina. Um, but, you know, having a place that is diverse and that has a ton of teachers from different places doesn't mean that you are a place that is respecting and treating workers with dignity. So when workers come together, there is power. And I'm going to sh shout out to my friends from the IWW over there. Yay, unions! Um, so we um, form a union, and it's very historic because D.C. is a very hostile place for unions. There are no unions... Um, there is a union for um, public schools, uh, pero las charter no tienen un union. So that means that charter schools operate uh, behind closed doors, and we don't know what, what's going on. So they make a lot of decisions that affect teachers, students, and our communities, and specifically black and brown students. Okay, So we as teachers know that we have to fight. We have to fight and organize for the schools that we want. So um, we want our union. Yes, make some noise. Because um, when workers when workers come together, there's a lot of power. Um, so we organized, community came together, families came together, everyone came together. Our students, my, kindergarten, my kindergartners understood that when something unfair is happening, what do you do? You stand up and you fight back. And you get that when you're five, when you're three, when you're six, when you're an adult. Hopefully we get it. But we need to show up for each other. So we, we want a union. And how is this connected to what's going on in Honduras? In Honduras, ha habido una huelga por meses porque los maestros están organizándose y están diciendo, hey, no tenemos libros, no tenemos eh, enfermeras, no tenemos eh, recursos, nos están eh, violentando, ¿no? Y se juntaron y están pidiendo, ¿verdad?, que tengan uh, recursos y que se inviertan las escuelas. That exact same fight is our fight here in D.C. and Oakland and Chicago and L.A. and Chile everywhere. Teachers are coming together with the community and they're saying stop, this is part of a system that is taking money away from schools and putting it where? And war and the military and police. So we know that we don't need that. We don't need cops. We don't need uh, militares, but we need schools, better schools. Um, so just a very quick connection between what's going on in Latin America and the world, what's going on in Honduras and what's happening here in DC. Um, so just a reminder that this fight is a fight against the empire. 
this fight is about dismantling a white supremacist system that is killing us, right? Capitalism kills, and we need to fight back. Um, so I'm really happy that we have interpretadores aquí, porque la lucha tiene que ser multilingüe, la lucha tiene que ser antipatriarcal, antiimperialista, and we need to come together, okay? So um, just that's, those are my two cents, but if you're a teacher and you want to organize, let me know, because I'm here and I'm happy to help. Uh, but yes, we are here and we're not going anywhere. Um, but yeah, if you want to talk to me after this about unions, um, come talk. And also the IWW friends are awesome, super radical militant. We love them so, so much. Thank you for being here, guys. We love you. Um, cool. So um, I'm going to say bye now. Bye. Okay. Ciao. You have been listening to Voices from the Program, 10 Years of Honduran Resistance, held June 26th. 2019 at St. Stephen Church in Northwest D.C. The voices were Liana Montesinos, a Honduran asylee and immigration attorney, Sean Blackman of the Stop Police Terror Project D.C., and Andrea Molino, an elementary school teacher. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. Effects and Black. I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usan su mente para revolución hey. I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usan su mente para liberación hey, yo, hey, yo. My heroes are young lords adored And ready to go to war In a society with racial anxiety Singing the blues of various hues and colors On the streets, people were killing each other So they on the coalition of brothers and sisters on a revolutionary mission. Now listen, they won't open with no crooked ass politicians. They made their own decisions based solely on their proposition. They had a 13 point program and platform. They knew that organizing was an art form that they could transform from college students and dorms into a militant organization with uniforms. The newspapers read Liberación Aguante, Liberty of Death to their last breath, fighting for those that have less. So though we mad stress, we still blessed. Stay blessed. I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira se poder de la gente Lo que usan su mente para revolución so for Culture and Media, I'm joined by Professor Gerald Horn, who is normally our geopolitical analyst, but we're talking about his newest book, Jazz and Justice, Racism and the Political Economy of the Music. And he will be at Sankofa Books and Video July 5th, and that's as we record this uh, show uh, later today at 6.30 p.m. And Gerald, last week we were talking about really the money side, how much organized crime, uh, the racism in this country wrested away control of jazz, of this music from the African-Americans that were producing it. But I'm curious about how the music was influenced by the social movements coming from the community starting from the, I guess, late 19th century up until the civil rights movement and beyond? Well, let's first begin talking about the mid-20th century when the anti-Jim Crow movement was beginning to take off because that's a real turning point for this music. Recall that that's when the percussionist Max Roach and the bassist Charles Mingus began to organize debut records an organization, a company that would have been difficult 
to organize before the advent of the anti-Jim Crow movement, not least because of the aforementioned domination of organized crime and Ku Klux Klan forces. But alas, uh, this effort, that is to say debut records, was also a bit premature in the sense that it too was ultimately driven out of business because of racism and other adverse malignant forces. However, it is fair to say that Max Roach in particular carried on and prevailed even after the demise of debut records. Uh, he became, became a major fundraiser, not only for the NAACP and anti-Jim Crow forces, but also for more left-wing and radical forces within the uh, black liberation movement. In fact, it's possible to say that Max Roach himself, who, by the way, has papers in an archive at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., was a soldier in the Black Liberation Movement. When you read his correspondence at the Library of Congress, it's not as if he was just raising money and then going along on his way. He was providing tactics and strategy as well. And I think that it's important to suggest that this kind of militancy was also reflected in his music. It was reflected in the We Insist Freedom Now suite. It was reflected also in the music of his comrade Charles Mingus, particularly the Haitian fight song, or the music that Charles Mingus did during the struggle against Jim Crow in Arkansas when he produced music that was basically lampooning then Arkansas Governor Arvo Faubus. So these musicians and their music were a material force in terms of ultimately knocking down the walls of Jim Crow and U.S. apartheid. And how about before the the civil rights movement? Were the musicians at all uh, impacted by earlier uh, efforts at kind of fighting white supremacy in this country? I'm just thinking about how so much music came out of the what we call now the the Great Depression and how much labor music came out of that era. Uh, were jazz musicians also equally active, or or did that come later? It mostly came later. I mean, it was very adverse circumstances. So, but one of the things that I do stress in this book is how so many musicians during the era before the anti-Jim Crow movement takes flight were driven into exile. They were driven into exile in Asia, in Latin America, and in Europe. But this exile did not mean they had distanced themselves from the struggle. Uh, they were raising money for the movement in the United States of America. In my book on the Associated Negro Press, I pointed out that a vocalist for the Duke Ellington Orchestra actually was a correspondent for the Associated Negro Press as she traveled with the Duke Ellington Orchestra throughout Europe. And she was something of an intelligence gatherer as well, uh, helping to connect uh, the movement in North America with comrades and peers uh, in Europe and overseas. And this is a story that I think needs to be told in, even in more detail than I was able to present in this book, Jazz and Justice. So finally, um, uh, is there anything that we haven't covered in your book that you think that we should definitely mention before you go? Well, one is that uh, this music we call jazz has received many premature burials over the decades, but the music is alive and well. And in fact, I end the book 
by talking about a concert that actually just took place a few months ago in London, where Kamasi Washington, the celebrated saxophonist in his band, played to an audience of 5,000 in London just a few months ago. So it's very difficult, uh, to put it mildly, to speak of an art form that's dying. This art form that has been a major contribution to global culture and global arts of black Americans as being on its deathbed when it's still attracting thousands and still generating interest. Right. Well, I guess that just shows you it's, it's about marketing and using the tools available to us on the World Wide Web and future platforms to come to continue to reach new audiences. Sure. sure. Right. Well, I've been speaking to uh, Professor Gerald Horn, author of the new book, Jazz and Justice, Racism and the Political Economy of the Music. Again, he will be at Sankofa Books and Video July 5th, and that's later today at 6.30 p.m. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. And the prolific author and activist Gerald Horn will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Go to onthegroundshow.org to support us, work with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. Catch the podcast on iTunes or Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. And if you like the show, support us on Patreon. The music we played this hour included The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Baltimore Goddamn by Navasha Dea, and Inspiracion by Conrado Maluk. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>